0: The Diary of a Harlequin is proudly brought to you by Charles Stanley Wealth Managers, official player welfare partner of Harlequins. If you're looking to start your investment journey, then Charles Stanley has lots of tips and ideas on how to secure your financial future. Welcome to the Diary of a Harlequin. I'm your host, Joe Yates Round, and today we're speaking to Harlequin's prop, Will Collier. With 225 appearances for Harlequins and two premiership winner's medals, not to mention his England caps, I think the term Harlequins legend has rarely been as well earned. Not content with being a world-class scrummager, he's also a food and drink entrepreneur as co-owner of Pigsty, a restaurant in Bristol with former Quins Ollie Cohn and his brothers. A Harlequins Academy graduate who relishes the physical contest as well as an aspiring sommelier. Welcome to the diary of a Harlequin, Will Collier. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's lovely to be here talking with you. Um, like I said it in the introduction, a bona fide, Harlequins legend, 225 appearances um, in the famous quarters. Do you feel like someone that's made 225 appearances for Harlequins?
1: Uh, physically, yes. That's uh, very, very generous of you, the Harlequins legend part. Thank you very much. Um, but, yeah, I mean, looking back at the first cap, wasps in Abu Dhabi um, all those years ago... Wow. That does seem a long time ago, so I think it's season number 15. Um, and those appearances, I mean, yeah,
0: you look back through the years and it feels about right, <laughs> that volume. <laughs> so first appearance wasps uh, against Wasps in, in Abu Dhabi, that must have been a hellish temperature to play rugby in.
1: It was extraordinary. Um, I just came off the bench, luckily. Uh, so I only played kind of 20 minutes as a little cameo, but... Um, I think we had the likes of Joe Launch be playing in that and yeah. obviously plen- plenty of others plenty of the other young boys as well but we played in the evening so it wasn't quite so bad but Fine. still balmy
0: yeah balmy barmy. Barmy. yeah um, that's a, a long time ago as you say and kind of you've been on a mad journey in that time at Quinns with both premiership wins and that fallow period I guess almost in, in between those two premierships from a, it, yeah. from a success on the pitch period but seen a lot of change with coaching group players that have come and gone like I asked Danny this when he was on the podcast in the first season. 2012 or 2021, which premiership win was uh, was better? Um,
1: I mean, I'm going to lean on 2021, mainly because I got on the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the... the when I said no one really got on, Connor didn't like making many changes. So yeah. <laughs> me, Lambert, and Buchanan all warmed the pine for the whole the whole final, which was arguably great watching it as a spectator as well. Yeah, but it's quite nice being on the pitch, raising your hands, celebration. But I think the whole manner of twenty twenty one, you just can't replicate it. No, mm. one, I think no one can. Yeah, the, from the comeback and the semi to the way we went about winning it, the game against Exeter, the everything about it, the year we'd had on the back of COVID and yeah. the older factors, all the different dynamics playing into that match a lot of boys moving on um all the different coaching setups and everything against all odds um it was it was just amazing and to be honest i think we're only just really getting over it <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> still to this day we don't know how we did it
0: <laughs> well i'd say having watched it in the stands i'm not sure either but it was uh, it was was pretty epic but let's go back then to kind of you said it's 15th season now uh, kind of uh, underway at quinn's but going back even further than that, was rugby always the career path that you sort of had mapped out in front of you? Do you know what I think I think it was? Um,
1: it was one of those, I remember I was chatting to, to my old man the other day, and mm. you do the career days at school, don't you? Yeah. And people tend to go, it's what their dads are. And you get the lads with the, the suitcases and the suits and the bankers. And I, I wore my Quinn's rugby shirt to, <laughs> that was just down the road at the school in East Sheen. And it was, yeah. it was I wanted to be a rugby player. I must have been... Six. I was young then. Yeah. Um, so, so it's always been, it's always been that. Obviously, the realities of then professional rugby yeah. to what I thought it was back then. Um, and I mean, I, I absolutely love it. I, I feel like the luckiest guy alive to be able to do this kind of job. But it, it because it has always been my dream and aspiration to do that. Mm. Whilst being very conscious that how, how lucky and fortunate we are to be doing it yeah. is generally very short lived.
0: And how. How did that kind of map itself out then for you? From being that five-year-old, six-year-old kid wearing his quin shirt, and like, I'm going to be a rugby player, and pro-rugby player. How did you go about achieving that? Like, was that with coaches at kind of grassroots rugby? Was that at what point did the Quinn's Academy start to kind of play a part in that? Because for Quinn's fans that will be listening to this, you're sort of living that fantasy dream of people that will have had quin shirts when they were five or six, but now get to wear slightly larger Quin shirts while they sit in the crowd and have a few a few pints but you're out there kind of doing it for, for real yeah
1: i mean it's as, as with everyone it's, it's a long old journey but i started my youth rugby at Roslyn park mm-hmm. down the road which is a club very close to my heart um and then got picked up when i was f- 14 i think it was we, we did a 10s tournament sorry 10s tournament wow um, and i played really well in the 10s tournament <laughs> believe it or not at that age which was amazing um Got picked up off the back of that, and it was Tony Diprose, I think, who was the one who yep. who scouted me. So thank you, Dips, if you ever listen to this. Um, and got picked up into the the EPDG, Elite Player Development Programme. I think it was called at that stage, and did all the England age groups. And, you know, luckily it kind of just it kept, kept going like that. And then when I signed for Quinns, obviously you get loaned out to different yeah. clubs. And I was really fortunate enough to be loaned out to Roslyn Park in national one which is kind of a nice full circle um and go and get filled in by a load of old men for a couple (laughs) of years and really learn your trade which i think is an important thing to do especially as a a prop yeah Um, i was gonna
0: say do you find that i know in recent years we've now got a partnership with with london scottish so actually a lot of the younger guys are getting minutes playing at championship rugby and not a dissimilar experience to what you would have had do you think that's an experience that maybe a, a group in between have missed out on that being able to blood themselves and it's important when you're young to go and play against some senior guys who have seen it all before yeah
1: potentially i think especially as a front row um Fine. you get i think you get some backs maybe or back row who can break through a little bit earlier mm. but for the front row you need that experience and that exposure to yeah to bit because you, you, you're in the age group and you think you're you know you think you know everything you think you can i can drill a 16 year old i can drill an 18 year old i know how to scrummage and then suddenly you're going out into the national leagues and you're looking at this opposite guy who's probably the same, no disrespect, but similar body shape to you. Outrageous. So, you that know, is disrespectful. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very athletic, but not necessarily the biggest bloke in the world. Yeah. And they've got you in all sorts of different shapes, twisting you like a pretzel. How the hell is this bloke doing this? And he, you know, they're, they're mid-30s. And you've got to learn. You've got to learn mm. your trade. just like anything else. It takes a long time. Um, and I think to, to develop that scrum experience takes a particularly long time yeah. and you've got to put the hours in getting drilled
0: <laughs> <laughs> well it's the sort of thing that props tend to really really relish that i think you've even referred to it before as not just you but like the dark arts of of scrummaging and how you kind of learn that and that's not something you can just have out of the box at, mm. at 18 well, there some particularly painful encounters that you remember from that loan back at, at rosden park of being as you say turned into a bit of a pretzel by these guys you think how on earth are you doing that
1: there were tons. I mean, I was very lucky enough to be somewhat protected because I was scrummaging with a guy called Chris Ritchie. He was a forty-year-old hooker wow. who I used to ball boy down at Roslyn Park, and I used to hand him the ball when I was a kid. To he'd drive off and then he threw. And there's a photo of me sat with him in the change room when I was a kid. Amazing. Then we ended up playing alongside. It was actually me, him, and Max Leheath. Oh wow! Okay. And so our combined ages were less than his total. I think I was nineteen and he was he was twenty or something. Anyway, it's it's. So he kind of taught us the, the ropes and yeah. how to box clever with it all. But you definitely come up against all the different shapes and sizes and it's character building. Mm. And I think it's crucial for the young boys to do that. And the partnership with London Scottish is quite important to yeah. a lot of the young boys. I mean, you look at someone like a, a Will Hobson who's getting exposure in game time, yeah. which is crucial. And then someone like a Finn Baxter as well, who's had all that and he's put the hours in and now he's just about making that, that leap and progression into the first team here. And he's yeah. done a unbelievably well and I do think a lot of that is is the confidence of having put the hours in a, a club like that
0: and how uh, look you've referenced my body shape and let's face it I was not cut out for front row or really athletic, rugby I no exactly Clearly. but uh, that's very kind at best um, how do you start as a kid how do you become a, a prop Right? How, how do you go from being that five six year old kid who wants to play rugby to going right I can't wait to go and put my head where it hurts and go and scrummage
1: on end. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a game for all shapes and sizes, isn't it? So I think that's that's the that's the starting point. If you're if you're big, <laughs> I'm going to be careful how, how I put it. If you're big, you tend to gravitate towards that side. Obviously, I tried to dabble with playing back row at one point, which I very yeah. quickly realised wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, obviously, you know, if you're big and you're powerful, you tend to get pushed towards the front the front row. Um, and then as you get older, the scrums or something. I think you. As you get older, you realise the importance of the scrum um, mm. and how lucky you are to be able to partake in... Yeah. I mean, I, I'm incredibly passionate about scrums. I, <laughs> I love them. But I think that's such a unique part of the game. Mm. Um, and in youth rugby, maybe you can get away with it and it's not quite so crucial and you can get yeah. the ball in and out. And, but when you get into men, men's rugby and there's teams that want to do these long scrums and yeah. they come hard and you've got... A, a ton a literal ton of weight yeah. coming against you um and there's no hiding places it's probably the most unique sporting encounter mm. in the world i can't think of anything you know i've I've racked my brains sumo wrestling jiu-jitsu maybe if you're blocking an nfl but i still think those 16 men yeah going at it like that on a rugby pitch it's it's the most unique sporting encounter I think there is, and it's a privilege to to be able to put your head in there. Or Obviously, it is it anyway,
0: <laughs> which um, which is good that you do because if you didn't, I don't think you'd do it quite so no, uh, quite so often. Exactly, but, but that's interesting because the combined forces that are going through kind of the necks on the particularly the props with the hooker as well uh, in there must be must be astonishing to kind of put your body through that on a repeated basis, not just as a as a one off.
1: Yeah, you know, so it's a incredibly unique thing. And it, that's what, the part of the... It takes a long time to get to, to that. It's like the mm. old Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the you're learning different lessons on how to cope with different players. It's your conditioning, your neck and your spine to be mm. able to deal with those loads week in, week out, um, which takes a bit of time.
0: What sort of wild and wacky things have you had to put your body through to to do that conditioning? Are there strange exercises mystic ceremonies how does it work
1: yeah i mean i could have a dig at someone like a gareth tong here our our conditioner and try and find some weird things he's done but to be honest it's all the usual a lot of olympic lifting um i used to do a lot of hand clean a lot of power lifting but the big thing is now is is just the squat to be honest um i say that because that's my my favorite lift i'm sure marla would probably say bench but (laughs) um i think squat is a tight head because you've got to load your spine and you've got to have that power um that's the one consistent thing which I think all tight heads should repeat throughout their right. career. God, we're getting nausy and scrummaging. It's yeah, great, isn't it? Wow, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: it. I'm not gonna lie, you lost me quite early on, but I'm I'm giving it a good go. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna keep going down that rabbit hole, by the way. Oh, good. Let well yeah. let's let, let' let's let's dive in. Is is that the line from Alice in Wonderland? I'm paraphrasing. Um okay. I remember reading an interview with Marla once that said, and I'm gonna get this completely wrong, so he'll probably come for me on this one, but that... He's not the best in the world at what he does, but he can make the best in the world 10% worse. I think I've, if I've made that up, then it's a great quote, but attribute it to Joe Marler. What Can you tell us what goes on when you guys in the front row are locking heads underneath the scrum? Is there talking, singing, poking, prodding? I'm just curious as someone that will never, if, ever if go If you're there. Joe, then yes,
1: um, <laughs> because he's the showman. And he he's good at that kind of stuff, but for me, not not so much. Um, Very occasionally, if you're against a mate, I mean, we I've been playing in this league for a long time now, so you get a lot of relationships, and so it's quite nice when you're playing against an old an old foe, and you're going down, you have a little smile or a little nudge or whatever. But um, it's it's you know we kind of put get our heads down and get on with it as props. We're not the most um, vocal unless you maybe your Joe who. Is quite good at those kind of things. And I think it's quite effective as well because he can yeah. actually put people off.
0: Has it ha- has, does it happen to you in training with with Joe? Like, d- does he go in training the same way he does on the pitch? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I'd say he does. That's just him. That's yeah. just him. Um, and maybe I can do it more at training and when I play I don't maybe. But he can, he can kind of transfer it.
0: And do you, yeah, I was gonna say, do you find then that when you're when you cross the white line, that you're very focused on the job at hand. I know, obviously, Joe is such a huge character, and and always gets clipped up in various different ways. Whereas actually, what you've just talked about—the passion for the scrum and the detail behind that—that that you probably need to be very mentally switched on to execute, as well as kind of physically primed.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's you've you've got a it's such a kind of stop, stop start, isn't it? And mm. and scrums are an isolated incident. Actually, I just thought this thing with, with Eddie Jones the other day when he was trying to say scrums aren't in isolation. They're always part of something else. But I actually disagree with that. Mm. Especially if you have an effective scrum Yeah, when you're going to dominate and get a penalty. That is in isolation. So I, th- I think cool. it's it's a reset. When you go into a scrum, it's, the whistle blows... And it's you know, the blanket comes the curtain comes down, you're right, scrum time. Right. That's when it kind of changes a bit. Um when you're in loose play, everything's different, and you're trying to get things ready and it's a bit more hectic and a bit more frantic. Right. And the bullets are flying. But when you get into the scrum, it's uh, okay, here we go. Lick the lips, this is scrum time. You're looking around, straight away you're looking for looking for the boys, where's Marla? Where's Launchbury? right, okay, come on, let's go. Interesting. Um and that's when you that's when you dial in the focus. And it's, it's an isolated confrontation, physical confrontation within the game. It's separate. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can play off that and use it as a platform and a, and a springboard to do other things, which we do very effectively.
0: Mm.
1: But a lot of the time, if you have a dominant scrum, that's going to be the moment
0: Then we're going to kick yeah. to the corner something's going to happen. Or Yeah, yeah you know, that's setting it up. That's given that foundation. setting it up, so. exactly, yeah. And is that some cod psychology coming here? Does that speak to you as a person, that that idea of that, isolated controlled environment to go head to head with someone that that speaks to your personality how you prefer to operate rather than the the chaos of the loose play that you're like in life generally like actually give me a framework give me a structure and that's going to suit me better
1: maybe but then you know i I say it's it's isolated and structured it's chaos in the scrum as well i mean you've got all sorts coming at you and you never really know what's going to come yeah um so you've got to be braced for different angles different weights there's so much they can do to mess around um so it's, it's part of it is the chaos as well um and obviously i love you know i love running around and everything else i love running around i, I do i do not <laughs>
0: <running around. laughs> i like that you said it checked yourself and went i'm doubling down yeah i love it well speaking of running around then the loose play. Like, the loose, the, loose play. Speaking, okay. speaking of loose play uh you may not be a great scorer of tries but you are a scorer of great tries uh or oh, Great Try. Look, look I'm going to stop dancing around yeah. it. I think it was Bristol, Here at the Stoop, Friday Night Lights, Will Colliers down the uh, down the short side. I remember which one that was. And uh, I think, you know, if you go back through your back catalogue of tries. You recall, I think you threw a dummy. In Collier Corner. That, that's the one. Yeah. You, you remember it. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. coming back, it's falling yeah, yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. At what point did you think that was on or was that just, you like, just trust your instincts? Um, well...
1: It's something I genuinely practice and do a lot in training, and I've mugged a lot of people off with my overenthusiastic dummies in the past <laughs> and I can get a few case studies that will tell you about that. Um, so it's something I, I, I have done for years yeah and the opportunity just presented itself and it, and it felt the, the time felt right.
0: Yeah. It just
1: felt felt right and it's, I've been holding it in my locker for a while. You know, no teams when they're doing a, their analysis on the opposition are going to say, "Watch out for his dummy." Yeah. So I knew there was an opportunity <laughs> right, yeah. there. Yeah, they probably not prep for this one. <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: so, and I thought this is it. And yeah, then I kind of blacked out. I was under the sticks. <laughs> 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 Has the temptation ever been there to go to go back, or, or are you like, right? I've done it now. Now they're going to start prepping for this. I've got to put that away for another couple. I of think years. I pr- I pr- you know,
1: what, I'm, I'm, I might do another one this season, but I can't obviously say when or no. in what manner um it might not result in a try um or any gain line effectively but there might be one
0: right that's that's the commitment that we want on the podcast that watch out the dummies coming back we don't know where we okay. don't know when but it's going to happen at some stage and if it
1: goes wrong and the coaches get pissed off i'm <sighs> straight
0: new. to me yeah, yeah 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 um I, I, they tend not to involve me in many of the performance meetings but i'm happy to step into I'll that bring one you into to it. say yeah. that I saw the opportunity. He had to get yeah, had to go for the it. The commercial team told me I have to do yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Correct. Yeah, um, that's Charles St- at the request of Charles Stanley, the, the official player welfare partner. You had to throw that dummy. Yes. <laughs> um, so that we talked about, you know, obviously the, the scrummaging side of things, and at the risk of it becoming a very different podcast, I'm going to leave it there because I am out of my depth now. I've, <laughs> I've exhausted my line of polite questioning. You're going to lose me, and no one needs to see that. Or maybe they do. Um, but let's talk about life outside of rugby. Are you one of those people that is? Sounds like you're pretty consumed by scrummaging. But when training's over, when you're back at home, are you there poring over videos of rugby, watching rugby, consuming rugby, or do you try to fill your time with other things away from that? I mean, I'm going to go back to scrums now, obviously. I, I watch a lot of scrums, Yeah, obviously. Um, but
1: I try and do a lot of stuff outside of rugby. It's It's got tougher, as I've, had, I've got a family now mm. and, and two young kids. But, you know, I've been lucky enough to being a team with some guys who've been very successful at doing stuff outside of rugby.
0: Yeah.
1: And I've used them as mentors to kind of guide me and influence me in, in, in things I want to do outside of it. Whenever I've had the opportunity to do things, yeah. um, I'd like to think I've taken them. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's kind of what I learned from, from those people I'm talking about, I'm sure we'll name them in a minute, mm. is just exploring different opportunities. And it's as, as much a win if you do something and decide you don't want to do it, yeah, you yeah. can cross that off the list. And know, okay, that's not for me. Yeah. Um, I can move on to the next thing now. So don't be a, afraid to go and
0: do something. Interesting. And I guess one of those people that we'll talk about now is is Ollie Cohn, who you play with. You've got the the restaurant down in Bristol that you're a co uh, co owner of, co-founder. Co, co-founder,
1: yeah, yeah. Co-founder? co-founder.
0: Um amazing, right? Is that do you love that kind of something outside of rugby? I mean, not outside of rugby because it's with yeah, yeah. Ollie, but food focused, kind of getting involved in the day to day of that business.
1: It's been amazing. I've absolutely loved it. Um and I'm really lucky to have been able to do it with someone like Ollie. Yeah. It's kind of the perfect alignment. It's it's every he's everything I'd want in a kind of mentor for Life After Rugby or whatever you want to call him. Um I'm slowly morphing into him, which is a bit <laughs> scary, I think, physically and everything, but he's a very handsome bloke, so that's fine. Yeah. Um but no, you know, he he obviously founded the Jolly Hog, did his it's quite similar. Thing. He did his ACL. Ella, his wife, brought him a sausage maker. He started making sausages, cutting an incredibly long story short. <laughs> um, off the back of his ACL and the sausage maker founded the Jolly Hogs, selling stuff here. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. The, the retail size exploded and they're all over the place. I did my ACL in 2015. Mm. thought, what the hell am I going to do? Should I do a short degree? Should I study something? Actually, no, I really want to explore food in this area. Yeah. So I went knocking on Ollie's door here, when he was in the shipping container at the stoop with his office at the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and basically came up with this concept of the kind of the restaurant, which we did as a pop-up and a bit of fun and made absolutely no money, as Ollie did when he first started doing his hog roasts. Yeah. And he made 400 quid, but then realised he actually spent 600 quid and <laughs> he's lost money, but <laughs> it's, it's a lesson you learn.
0: Yeah.
1: And we had a great time doing it. Um, and we, I did it throughout the summer, and then we got offered a, a site down in Bristol. Amazing. Nice. Opened one restaurant, and then... Um, got very carried away and opened another ginormous restaurant in Bristol as well, Yeah, um, which was a lot trickier to manage and a whole other story. But again, we learnt so much and it was a hell of a journey. And I've been lucky enough to get involved in the wider group now and mm. more of the retail side, the concession side, because oh, they do a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, and I've obviously learnt a lot with them.
0: But I'm also happy to say that I'm very much keeping you all in long trousers because... Uh, they're a staple on our weekly shop list, the, the Jolly oh, uh, sausages. But you say that, you know, try things. If they don't work out, then you can tick it off the list, but at least you've given it a go. What were some of those things that, particularly with that, that bigger restaurant you said that opened, that is a whole mm. other story. Let's get into that a little bit of that. Definitely. What was one of the things that really maybe shocked you or caught you by surprise when going, oh, we've done it at this level. Great, let's just repeat it on a bigger scale. What are the things that not tripped you up, but you went, didn't expect that?
1: but it's one of those where it's, it's the classic hindsight thing because we we got this this first restaurant which was relatively successful mm. tiny 36 old covers and then this new site popped up and yeah. it was back it was kind of the casual dining boom when we thought yes. casual dining is going to be the thing you know it's everywhere you can just roll out these restaurants yeah um so very quickly let's roll out another one and this site came up on Gloucester Road which is mega hipster trendy road in Bristol yeah. the longest road of independent retailers in the country Lovely. very hipster very cool and it was an old, obviously, the West Country, quite well renowned for their pork and their butchery. And it was an old pork butcher, this site. So we we're like, it's fate. We're gonna uh, open it. Yeah. Um, so we went from thirty-six covers to one hundred and six, I think it was.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, huge. That's and big, the yeah. boys' offices were in the back, so which is great, but then also very time-consuming for them. Um, and basically, it was a re- it's a slog, huge slog. But when you boil it down, what we were was an all-day eatery pork themed which is which is looking back as a relatively tough sell to make something like (laughs) that work and credit to the boys it was it was trucking along all right yeah
0: um
1: and it was going it was going okay and we were kind of hitting numbers but they were working so so hard
0: yeah
1: so so hard ollie was 24 7 he was there Mm -hmm. he was getting called out of meetings trying to put the fryer on or something because the chef hasn't turned up and spinning all these different plates um because there's all different things getting thrown at you as a as a restaurant. Mm. It's it's a stop slog. I mean, you've got the retail side of the business and the inv- the events and the concessions as well. Yeah. When something like that's consuming so much time.
0: Yeah, it's inevitable. It, the other bits. Ne-
1: yeah, and the, the bravest thing Ollie and the boys did was was decide to knock it on the head when they did. Yeah. And because it'd be very very easy to say, let's just keep slogging it because. Yeah. You know, it wasn't. It was kind of going okay. It wasn't a disaster. We could make it work. We can make it work. We can adapt. We can maybe bring in other things. I said, actually, no. This is way too time-consuming. Let's just do it. Let's just knock on the head now. And they made that decision just before COVID and lockdown. So thank wow. God they wow. did. Wow. Yeah. Um, which was great. And so we, we we decided to close that one. We still got the first one, which goes really well. Yeah. Which is really great. And then obviously in the interim between making that decision to close the restaurant and where we are now. The retail side of Jolly Hog and that whole side of it has kind of just boomed. Um, Which you
0: probably wouldn't have been able to do had they been slogging out for the restaurant and then maybe, having to pivot yeah. so aggressively with a,
1: exactly, yeah with a lockdown, etc. Um, but, you know, the, all the resources got piled into that. And I think it, everything has gone to the next level on that side of it. The products, mm-hmm. the range, um, and where you can get them all now. The exposure has been huge. So we learned a lot in that experience
0: i could imagine and not to feed into the stereotypes of rugby players we talked about food and food business i mentioned it in the introduction one of the other passions is is wine mm. and not just wine for the sake of nights out with the boys but kind of really getting in invested in kind of the the science of wine and that kind of the world of being a not being a sommelier but but that sort of training again was that just from a personal passion that you're like I want to learn more about this. Did it come out of that same ACL injury around 2015? How did that no, sort of start
1: to I mean, I've always enjoyed my wine and loved it. And I, I was that's a, a period when I wasn't able to do as much at Jolly Hog because they're down in Bristol. Yeah, I wanted to do something else. Um, had a couple of good mates in wine. Mm. And I thought, well, I'll do my, my wine exams. So WSET, which is the one that Chris Robshaw has done, which he's told everyone about. <laughs> and he's just shouting from the rooftops about it um even though he only ever drinks left bank claret now or bordeaux which is fine <laughs> um <laughs> but um i've done level three so i'm way better than chris which is fine, great good yeah but I, yeah i decided it's something i wanted to do and i loved and i enjoyed more and i've got a lot of friends who are very passionate about wine mm. and um and in that industry it's again it's an incredibly tough industry yeah. especially now with where we're sitting in the EU and everything, and, and trying to sell wine in the UK, but um, you know, in, in all the different fashions in the restaurants and retail, if you're bringing wine in, um, it's a really interesting business. And at the end of the day, it's something I'm very passionate about, mm. and I love I love my wine. So I wanted to have a better understanding of it. It's not necessarily something I'll do as a career. It may maybe, um, but it was one of those things I wanted to explore more of. Fascinating.
0: So go on and talk me through what's. What's Will Collier drinking right now? What's uh what you well, said the game on
1: the weekend, mate, Yeah, so... no, no, not not
0: <laughs> right now. Uh, but but sort of at, at the moment, what are you uh, what are your favourites? What are the ones that we should be looking out for? Okay. Um, on the spot? Like Saturday Kitchen style.
1: What did we have on the weekend, which was really nice? Domaine Chapelle. Uh, Beaujolais, which a lot Lovely. of people turn their nose up at Beaujolais. Mm. Very um, young, like it's f- yeah, fruity and rich. Actually, Beaujolais Nouveau's day is coming up, but yeah. I like uh, quite a lighter, fruitier style, Okay, which is quite contradictory to me as a person. I know a lot of the big front row there, yeah. similar to Robbo, they're just going to drink left-bank Bordeaux, but <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> nothing against it, it's great no. wine. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I like that style a bit more, I think, um, okay. Pinot Noirs and... Maybe some northern Italy wines, which I know shout out to our owner. I think it was Charles Gillings, has a real penchant for his he does. Um Barollos and Barbaresco's,
0: etc. So God, we're going off to down another rabbit hole here. But yeah, that's don't. um that's what I'm drinking at the moment. But look, many facets we've done. The scrummaging rabbit hole, we've done the wine rabbit hole. What's the next rabbit hole we'll go down? Let's find out. Um, <laughs> but interesting that you say that's not necessarily a career move, that was just a passion. I actually I've got the time, I want to learn more about it. Are you is that personality trait that you see in yourself that when you are passionate about something you almost want to consume as much knowledge as you can about about that topic like scrummaging wine like we joked about it but you clearly have a very in-depth knowledge and a hunger to want to learn more about those areas
1: to a certain degree yeah i I find myself you know you can be a bit of a hobbyist almost and you you do little bits here and there little bits here and there and you know one, one day i'm into this one day i'm into that yeah but with, well, I think when it's something I really care about, that and I can I can go quite hard at it. Mm. Um, so like with, with the Jolly Hog stuff and the the food and the restaurant, I donated a lot of my time to that. Yeah. Um, and then with the wine, it was something I made that decision and I really wanted to see it through. Yeah, and make sure I'm not just doing this and forgetting okay. about it. Or yeah, it was something I wanted to try and maintain. Um, and to be honest, I don't know where the next step is. Whether it's developing the wine or mm um obviously i'm going to stay more involved with the jolly hog but i think it maybe maybe it is a, a trait I mean, my wife would probably say i am more of a hobbyist and i do a bit here and a bit there and then move on to sort of other things but right, okay. um for the things i'm really passionate about and care and care about then i want to throw myself in properly what's the last hobby then that you say you were a hobbyist about that you were like
0: like oh yeah a bit <laughs> bit of that and then cast aside
1: uh, i mean there's drumming there's fishing there's there's all sorts which which i do sustain as well yeah you know maybe just not as much as i'd like to okay um but yeah fishing a bit of golf golf's probably the main one really to be honest <laughs> yeah I'm, yeah I'm, I'm
0: let's not shy away from it that's, yeah, uh, yeah that's there's a few a few of you boys in the team volatile really yeah good golfer no <laughs> no no no, no. Um, um, you mentioned that you've got two young kids that's that gonna got... be my excuse for a yeah, golfer actually right yeah. okay i mean lock it in i'm happy with that uh how do you manage to find the time for all of that like you're a professional rugby player. Let's not forget, and you've got you're working in with jo- the guys at Jolly Hog, the pigsty business, the wine stuff, drumming, fishing, golf. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's it's
1: it's tough. I mean, I, if I'm perfectly honest, I don't do as much right now as I'd like to with the Jolly Hog, but also that's because where they are, yeah, yeah being yeah. down in Bristol, and I've done a lot with them in the past, and it's always something I think I can go back to. Mm. The wine side of things is something which is still taking over and there's a few other bits and bobs going on there. Um it's actually a company called well, Sporting Wine Club, which yep. I think you're aware of. Yes, um yep. with Simon yep. Halliday, which is quite an interesting angle as well, which I've been playing around with there. Um cool. but yes, I think, you know, as a, as a sportsman, people think you have a lot of time on your hands. And you do. Mm-hmm. Um you've just got to be organized with it. Um especially at Quinn's that you know, we're quite fortunate we get days to recover and days off to rest. And yeah you know someone like Matt Simmons who was going to his office two days a week and he really made the most of it i mean he was one of the extremes where he was doing yeah. it a lot but if you balance it with the recovery and as long as you're getting the rugby side of things right first then you can do that stuff i think that's something mm. especially as i get a bit older as well i, I almost and, and the end is not the inside because i'm going to go on for years but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know of course, yeah. you, you want to make the most out <laughs> of rugby you want to actually give more energy to rugby, which is interesting. Some people, I think, oh, when they get okay. to the end of it, panic and, yeah, yeah. and say, "I'm going to be out of a job next year, whatever." Blah, blah, blah. I need to figure out what to do. Understandably, but my 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 headspace now is is such a unique, short-lived thing. I'm going to milk it for everything it's worth, yeah. and I'm I'm just going to, I'm going to be kind of pretty focused on rugby, especially this year um and get the most out of what i can with quinn's which is where i feel i am right now to be honest
0: that's interesting i guess that like some we've heard people on this podcast and listen to, to the boys speak in other areas how differently you guys all approach it that some guys are like right when i get to that age sort of 28 that's when i start thinking about life after rugby and i'm gonna do all my planning in that final four or five years of my career and then boom i'm ready to go but it feels like you've done a lot of that work almost already of going right i've explored all these areas and you you said yourself as a a hobbyist or or not but that means that you've kind of got this period now where you're actually sort of at the peak of my powers i come the end's not in sight but it's not far away in in Mm. the grand scheme of things so you're like actually let's throw myself into rugby and let's be the best rugby player is that i think that's fair yeah
1: it it kind of is and i mean you know i'm not sure by any means what i want to do when i retire Mm. i've got certain ideas yeah I know I'm probably not going to open a restaurant, which is yeah. a great thing to know, because yes. if I hadn't have done that and we hadn't have opened that other one, yeah, I'd probably yeah. be retiring and saying, let's go open a restaurant.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And then four years down, then I go, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> um, but, you know, I've done, I've, I've done that and I've explored that avenue. Um, and I think, I've, you know, I've spoken to a lot of old boys. All, all my mates have retired now or moved on through injury. Yeah, yeah, my close yeah. mates are Harlequins. Yeah. You know, there's obviously got the Rob Shaws, the Cones, Lambert, George Lowe, Buchanan, the list yeah, goes on and on course, and on. It's huge yeah. huge list. Um and you and you speak to them and it's all reminiscing about the playing days and how lucky we are and all the stories, the never ending stories which get more and more elaborate <laughs> each time you tell them. Um but you realize how lucky you are to still be in it. Cuz I'm yeah. kind of the only one still in it out of that group now. Yeah. Um you check on the WhatsApp groups or whatever. And
0: and you realize you can't take it for granted. Um so I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. Quite right too. Um, and so we've heard a bit about, and I think I know where this answer might go, but what would you say your extravagances are that you spend your money on? Is, is it wine, essentially? That's what I want to know.
1: Wine and beef. Wine and beef. <laughs> uh, I mean, it depends. I, I, I go through phases. Um, I've got to be careful... I, let my wife listen to this but if, i mean the fi- the fishing took a bit really uh, yeah that, that took a bit of a hammering um <laughs> but no it's, it's it's wine it's wine to be honest um i buy what buy wine with a couple of mates um and we lay it down but it's an investment isn't it it's, it's an investment. investment i was gonna say it that genuinely is, is because it actually um, is it's one of
0: those things that it's not a fishing rod is less of an investment i'm not gonna lie i'm not an expert on the uh, appreciation or depreciation of those sorts of things yeah, but yeah but do you, find you speak to
1: rob shaw he's good at that yeah.
0: is he <laughs> um, but speaking about like that wine as, as an investment is that something that you're conscious of as well that there will be a time we have to have another career and actually it is mm. about setting yourself and your family up for that Maybe a bit volatile to start with that you've got some other resources or other things 100 percent.
1: i mean it's the best definitely my biggest anxiety and biggest paranoia for especially when you have a family and kids mm. um and you know i feel I'm in a quite a good situation because I've been very aware of it, and I've had people around me like Ollie Cohn, yeah,
0: um,
1: and and others who haven't been in the rugby circle necessarily, who are incredibly conscious about that. Mm. And Ollie's always had this thing, you know, multiple income streams and protecting yourself, or whatever, which has worked really well for the Jolly Hog, yeah, having the mm-hmm. retail, the restaurant, the concession, whatever, being able to pivot on that. Um, but being aware of how hard it's going to be when retirement comes, mm. I think that's the biggest thing is is understanding and being aware, and, and you know, for some people, it might not be. You might be jump into something and love it. But yeah. for the vast majority, I think er- erring on the side of this is probably going to be incredibly difficult. Right. Um, and un- having an understanding of that is quite important. But, you know, back to, I guess we're talking about the financial side of it as well. Um, I've been lucky enough to play for a long time. So yeah. um, I've been able to prepare for that a bit better you know some than some other people who have to retire early
0: yes yeah
1: but i guess then they put their own safeguards in place to hedge against that so yeah there's obviously different schemes and whatnot that can help with that but um yeah you know i, I feel lucky to have had good people around me to guide mm-hmm. me on it
0: and is that something that you, you know as you look back over your career and, and look forward to what's still to come any advice you give to some of the younger guys maybe is make sure you've got a breadth of people around you that you can lean on not just Current and former rugby players, which is a great group, but mm. also having those guys outside of it just to lend a different perspective. It's crucial, I think.
1: You know, it's, it's in the council you keep is is mm. the advice is everything, and and it's I, I go to these people for everything. Yeah. Be it, you know, contract negotiation or, yeah. or this bit of that, and and you need some advice. There's there's different people in different walks of life, mm. slightly different dynamics, slightly different outlook. Who who would advise me on that, and who I kind of look up to, and, and in the way they do things. Um, and I'm lucky that I've got a, a pretty solid group of people who I who I trust and have used as my counsel for a few years. But you know, someone again who who he's dominating this podcast, but someone like Ollie, yeah, who's known this for, for years, he's been planning and planning and planning. Yeah. Um so to to look up to him and see him do that was was huge. And, yeah.
0: and also to see it working. I know that maybe it's a strange or maybe a glib thing to say that it's not just someone who's you've looked up to, you gone plan and plan, and you go, wow, what an absolute horlox he's made of that. You yeah, yeah, that? You yeah go, oh, Okay, you're doing it, it's not linear, there's peaks and troughs, but that is the journey that, I have to do the exact same journey, but it's possible and it's achievable by following that. That definitely, must give definitely. you a bit of comfort.
1: And then, you know, name-checking a couple of others, two of my other best mates from from rugby, George Lowe and Rob Buchanan, on their own separate journeys, <laughs> yeah. slightly entrepreneurial things, but George has got three incredibly successful gyms, yeah. Rob's got an amazing butchers, potentially yeah. looking at another... And they've both done it in very different ways. Obviously, Mm. both of them retired through injury way earlier than they should have done. Should have had way more rugby left in them. Um, And I think maybe Rob's was slightly more sudden than George's. George might have known Mm. it was coming, so he could maybe plan a bit more. But um, they've both had to react and overcome a hell of a lot to get to where they are now. And I know how tough it was, obviously, firsthand from seeing them go through that and to where they both are now. Um, Mm. It's quite inspiring to see... And I you know, if it fills me with confidence, and I hope it fills other players with confidence to see people who have retired from rugby through whatever situations, being able to get themselves yeah. doing something which both of those guys genuinely love and they've made a career out of it. Yeah. It's not just they're, do, they're not doing something they don't enjoy. Yeah, They're, they, not they're just passionate about it. Do it yeah. Yeah.
0: It's interesting, this is a sense of a chat about you willing to get to know you a bit more, about how willingly and how regularly you talk about others and the other people that surround you, I think is insightful to use as a person that you're not very insular. Would that be a fair thing that you're kind of got you've got one eye up looking at the world and going, right, that's what that person's doing, that's what that person's doing, that's how that's working, that's how that's not working. Do you see yourself as someone that's not not analytical, but almost like, right, I'd like to know about a as wider breadth of options first before narrowing it down than just yeah. jumping into something on a whim.
1: I think that's fair that's safe to say, yeah. I I um you know, I just want to do the, the due diligence on it, I guess. I want to be sh- be sure when you're going into something that you know it's, it's the right thing or um, or if you're going into it, either, then it's going to be, actually, I don't like this and it's, it's the wrong thing. But yeah, yeah it's, it's, I guess, knowing your options and knowing what other people are doing. But again, I've been lucky enough to have people around me who have done these things and have been tried and trusted because, mm. you know, I mentioned George and and Rob. They didn't just going to right, this open a gym let's go into a butcher yeah. rob was working for like a meat wholesaler and doing all these other different things which he didn't enjoy um mm, yeah but he went he went through that and right, not for me not for me not for me okay this is an opportunity here i've learned my trade let's open this butcher shop and the time was right mm-hmm. um i think the same with george you know he learned his trade and he's done a lot of other yeah. things very quite successful in his property and then he's gone on to open these gyms which has been amazing
0: Learn his trade. I think I, you'd first use that when we were talking about your spell with Roston Park in um, National One, about learning your trade. It's kind of a, a, an interesting thing that comes out of these conversations sometimes that that's kind of where you put stall in terms of the effort you apply in learning the the grassroots or the base skills before you start trying to apply at the top yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. What's, to paraphrase Forrest Gump, life is like a scrum. Um, uh, I don't know where the rest of that's going. I'll leave that there. Let like that hang in the ether. Um, it feels like a relatively good place to, to wrap up, Will, which means I get to ask my last question, which is different for, for this series than we did in the first series. Essentially, and you sort of alluded to it, in the future, maybe 10, 15 years from now, you'll be retiring from rugby. Um, somewhere around that sort of ballpark. When you look back on your career, having hung your boots up, what would you like to be the most proud of in your rugby career?
1: Oh, that's a really tough question. What would I like to be the most proud of? Um, I mean, I would love to, at Quinns, Mm. be, be known as one of the key people to have left and again, I'm going back to it because this is the main bulk of the podcast, a bit of a scrummaging legacy. Um, because we've got the personnel here at the moment, yeah. the likes of Bomb and Mahler and I like to think myself, where maybe Quinn's necessarily in the past hasn't had that. And yeah. you look at a team like a Leicester who are playing on the weekends and they have the ABC club or whatever, and it's their scrum dynasty, and it's the legacy, and look at the successful scrum. They've had the sustained scrum for years. Um, I'd be very proud if I can move on, um, having had, I think we've had a successful scrum for a period of years now, very successful scrum for okay. a period of years now, which has been the foundation of our success, I, I believe, and I think a lot of people would would also believe that. Mm. If I can move on and those other boys fill that gap, so, that, you know, the Baxters and the boys I'm talking about... Yeah um you know boys like dylan lewis and kerridge who, who step up and and fill th- and take it to the next level for the sustained success yeah and that is th- that is quins then quins have a dominant scrum full stop yeah. we always do um because i think that changes the perception of the whole team because it's the oh the glitz and glamour quins they can throw it around they can chuck it around yeah actually we can but we can also do the really horrible stuff which a lot of guys don't really like doing yeah. and wasn't necessarily
0: associated with us in the past um, but I like to think maybe that perception's changed and sometimes those players can do both uh, they're scrummaging they're holding their own and then they're throwing an outrageous dummy and dotting it down onto the posts um, Will thank you very much for being uh, this week's guest on the Diary of a Harlequin.
1: thank you for having me <laughs>